Amen. You may be seated, and I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter 20, uh, sorry, chapter 11, Luke 11, verses 29 to 32. I recall Easter last year in which I had labored in the weeks leading up to Easter to preach to what I anticipated was a full house, and I came in and I gave a rip-roaring sermon to a bunch of empty seats while everybody was at home watching online. And I just want you to know that was an interesting experience, and I am glad that the Lord gave me and humbled me and gave me that experience, but I wouldn't trade it for this sweet fellowship that we have here this morning. Good morning to those of you listening online. Good morning to those of you tuning in by radio. Good morning to those of you who've gathered here indoors and outdoors. Happy Good Friday. We're going to read this morning Luke chapter 11. We're going to pick it up in verse 29. We're going to read 29 to 32. We'll pray and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to help us. And then we'll get to work. Read with me. It says in Luke chapter 11, verses 29, when the crowds were increasing... He, being Jesus, began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh, in fact, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and will condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we just ask that your spirit would illuminate the text before us this morning. We pray, Father, that as all your people have gathered on this Good Friday, this high point in the Christian calendar in which we reflect upon the horrible suffering that your son underwent 2,000 years ago. Lord, our prayer this morning is that we would be reminded once again of the unmistakable sign of the cross that we would not seek for any other reassurance, that we would not look for any more compelling argument, and that our hope would not rest in any other, any other sacrifice than the gift of your Son on the cross. Lord, strengthen your people's faith in the cross this morning and remind us once again of the beauty, the power, and the hope of Christ crucified for us. We ask that you do this this morning in the name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. In retrospect, it was an opportunity for me to be humbled, but not shamed. Many, many years ago, I was out late on a Friday night with uh, one of my dearest friends, and we had just pranked another friend of ours, and we were driving home. It was past midnight, and as we were driving home, For some really bizarre reason, the conversation in the car turned to matters of faith and salvation. And I made the comment to my friend, this is why Jesus died, that we would be saved from the guilt of the stupid pranks that we just pulled. And my friend commented to me, and I was shocked by this statement because I had never known him to be this much of a cynicist or a pessimist. He said to me, there is no hope. I mean, there's no way that we can know whether or not we're saved or whether there's a God or there's no way we can have any confidence. There are so many different world religions. How would we ever be able to know which was the right one? Now, I had told him before about Jesus and I had shared with him before about the cross And I had assumed that those words had just sort of settled with him. He had never responded positively or negatively. But in that moment, the despair that came out, it wasn't despair. It was more anger. And I didn't really know what to say to him other than to say, well, 
I think Jesus is the right way. Looking back on it, I recognize now that when we look at the cross and we understand what Jesus is doing on the cross, it is beyond any other possible belief. It is beyond any other possible human reasoning or logic. It is beyond any other sign that we could have ever hoped for or asked for. When Jesus dies on the cross, church, listen to me, it is the greatest power of salvation that there ever could have been in all of eternity. Jesus is the solution. We need look no further than Christ dying for his people on the cross. When people say, I need more, I need a sign, or I need a miracle, or there has to be a greater argument, or when they turn in criticism and they say, you know, did he have to die? Couldn't there have been some other way? They have misunderstood either who they are, or they have misunderstood who it is that God is, or they are refusing in their pride and their sinful rebellion against God to accept what he has graciously provided. Jesus is here in Luke chapter 11. He has been performing miracles. He has been feeding the masses. He has been casting out the demons. Matthew tells us that a bunch of rabbis, Pharisees, come to him, and they begin to challenge him by saying to him, show us a sign. And this is in keeping with their tradition. As as followers of God, they had understood from generations past that whenever God wanted to speak to his people, he would send a prophet, and that prophet would be validated by performing signs and miracles. And that if God was with that prophet, those things would reveal him as being legitimate and authentic. And what's ironic is he's been performing miracles all the way along, but they're not satisfied, and so they continue to challenge him. They continue to say, give us a miracle. Show us a sign. And Jesus, both in the Gospel of Matthew as well as here in Luke chapter 11, makes the statement, an evil generation seeks for a sign. He calls them evil. Now, if I go into... Uh, the library to check out a book and, and they say, you know, we need your library card. And if I say, well, I don't have my library card. And they say, well, we need you to show some, some proof of who you are. Do you have a driver's license or some sort of a picture ID? If I say to them, look, you're evil for wanting to know who I am. Now that's a bit of an overreaction. That, that would be a fair thing for them to ask of me. If we're going to give you a book, you need to be able to verify who you are. And yet, these people, as far as Jesus is concerned, have had adequate signs, adequate miracles performed, and they're still asking for a sign. But what's fascinating is when he calls them evil for seeking for more, he says there's one sign that should suffice for all. There's one miracle which should address every criticism and every objection. He makes the statement in Luke chapter 11. The crowds are increasing, and he said to them, this generation is an evil generation. It's evil because it is seeking for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, he calls them evil, and he says that the reason they're evil is, again, because of their persistence in asking for more and more proof, more and more evidence, and he tells them no other sign could come other than the sign of Jonah. This is a reference to the Old Testament prophet who was called by God to go to Nineveh and to preach repentance to Nineveh. Jesus, in addressing this request for a sign, makes the statement, no other sign is going to be given other than the sign of Jonah. He says in verse 30, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Jesus is saying that in the same vein that Jonah was sent to the people of Nineveh to preach salvation, to preach repentance, and to preach forgiveness, so the Son of Man, so Jesus has been sent by God the Father to preach salvation, to preach reconciliation, to preach forgiveness. Now, the really interesting thing about Jonah was that when he was first called upon by God to go to Nineveh, Jonah didn't want to go. 
When Jonah considered the people of Nineveh, he was filled with anger. He was filled with rage. This was a wicked generation. This was a wicked city of people that were constantly threatening and attacking the people of Israel. And Jonah hated them. And so when God asked Jonah to go and preach, Jonah was of the conviction that these people stood rightly under the judgment of God and he chose to run because he didn't want to preach to these people. He didn't want to help them find out that they could be forgiven by God. And so he took off in the opposite direction. And as the story of Jonah unfolds, he gets on a ship and he takes off into the, into the ocean, heading the opposite direction. God sends a hurricane or a typhoon or a massive storm. The ship is swamped. The people on the ship are like, what should we do? And Jonah says, look, the reason this is happening is because God told me to go to Nineveh. I'm going in the opposite direction. You throw me overboard, you'll be fine. So they shrug their shoulders and they throw him overboard. And they were fine. As Jonah was there in the ocean, a fish comes along and swallows him. And from the depths of the sea, inside the belly of this this fish, Jonah cries out to God and he pleads for God's salvation. And God rescues Jonah and saves him. But Jonah then must be faithful to go and preach to the people of Nineveh. And sure enough, he goes and he preaches to the people of Nineveh And the people of Nineveh hear the good news that God is prepared to forgive them and to be reconciled with them. And in sackcloth and ashes, weeping with fasting and repentance, they cry out to God. And God hears their cries for forgiveness and extends mercy. Jonah was in the fish for three days, as good as dead at the bottom of the ocean. And Jesus is saying that as a man who believed fully in the judgment and the destruction of Nineveh was brought forth from the depths as good as dead after three days to preach forgiveness and reconciliation with God, as that became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so is Jesus to be a sign to this generation as he is dead and in the tomb for three days. Once he emerges, he comes to preach peace. He comes to offer forgiveness and salvation. Jonah fully believed in the need for God's judgment. Jesus fully believes and agrees as the Son of God in the need for God's judgment. But whereas Jonah was settled on the people of Nineveh being destroyed and needed God's gracious intervention in his life to turn him around, Jesus goes gladly and willingly to the cross. Whereas Jesus, just like Jonah, believes fully in the need for God's judgment to come upon us all, Jesus, unlike Jonah, has the heart of God, which is a heart of mercy, And he comes to do what is required in order to save us. A rather popular Christian song, we started our worship service off singing it this morning, In Christ Alone. It's a modern hymn. It's written by uh, Getty, uh, Stuart Townend and Keith Getty. We sang it this morning, In Christ Alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, the gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Church, can you say amen? Amen. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. A Presbyterian church in the United States heard a, 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 an erroneous version. Somebody who was compiling their hymnal, their most recent hymnal, was at a worship conference somewhere and heard an erroneous version of this song being sung in which that line, the wrath of God was satisfied, had been taken out and changed to say, uh, in Jesus, the love of God was magnified. So rather than it saying the wrath of God was satisfied, in Jesus, the love of God was magnified. That was, that was the change in the lyric. And so they had heard the, the fellow that was in charge of the hymnal for the Presbyterian Church of the USA, and this is the liberal version of the PC, 
he had heard that song and he'd requested to have this song put in. And he'd written the letter to, uh, to the Gettys and asked for permission to put this song in their hymnal. And the Gettys, when they reviewed it, spotted the erroneous lyric and said to them, you may have permission to put this song in Christ alone in your hymnal, but you may not have permission to change that line. And of course, the PCUSA said, well, we don't believe in that kind of a gospel. So forget your song. We won't include it in our hymnal. Now, the irony of it is, when we talk about the love of Jesus for us, we do not understand the greatness of it or the enormity of it if we do not understand that what he was doing on the cross was enduring the wrath of God. It is absolutely true that God loves us. It is absolutely true that Jesus has come voluntarily in the sign of Jonah in order to love us. But we don't understand that love if we don't understand that the cross was a place of torture, it was a place of crucifixion, it was a place of murder, it was a place where God's judgment in his righteous anger against sin was poured out in full measure. You see, God's not angry anymore with you and me and those of us who have trusted in Jesus. His anger has been fully satisfied. The judgment and the justice required for our sins has been completely exhausted in what Jesus did for us on the cross. Can you think of any other religion in the world, any other system of belief or human philosophy that does truth to the reality of evil? and is simultaneously fair to the character of the holiness of God. Consider with me a few ideas here. Let's consider various world religions. Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism. For most of these Eastern religions, salvation is understood to be achieved through uh, enlightening your mind. It's not what you do so much as what you think. And in fact, within Buddhism, the idea here is that you experience pain and suffering because you are desiring things that you ought not to desire. And so the way that you end your suffering, the way that you end pain, the way that you are saved is you just stop wanting things. Now, it sounds really great at first, but if you were to take Buddhism and introduce it into the concentration camps in World War II, I dare say it would not prove that helpful to the six million Jews who were murdered and the many millions more who starved and suffered under that kind of evil. Buddhism does not provide hope. It tries to get you to have some hope, but it tries to do it through destroying who you are as a person by eliminating all desire. All Buddhism can do is steal your joy. Or consider one of the most popular religions in the world just by virtue of the population of the country, China, Taoism, an ancient religion from the Far East, they suggest that salvation is a matter of participating in the eternal return of the natural world, yielding to chaos, embracing the craziness of everything around us. They say it's okay that you want better. Go ahead and want better. This is in distinction to Buddhism. Buddhism teaches, Buddhism, Hinduism, these, these various religions teach that your desires are what are out of whack. Taoism says, you can have whatever desires you want. You just need to be prepared to embrace what is. And so in Taoism, we find a religion that says there is no power of salvation. Just be whatever is. Just embrace whatever comes. It's rather fatalistic. Whereas, Hinduism steals, whereas Buddhism and Hinduism steal your joy, what we find in Taoism is that they're not even trying to give you joy. Just embrace the sadness of it all. Just endure whatever comes. 
And of course, in the next most populous religion within Islam, within Islam, they say you can't have peace, but you must surrender entirely to the will of Allah. Within, within Islam, the Quran's teachings regarding salvation are completely inconsistent. You're not entirely sure which one you should believe on which given day. On the one hand, the Quran teaches that salvation is based on purification by good deeds, and a Muslim can theoretically become righteous through prayer and almsgiving and fasting and making pilgrimages and living according to the Quran. And yet, on the other hand, the Quran also teaches that Allah has predetermined every person's destiny and one's righteous acts may or may not affect Allah's decision regarding whether or not you will be saved and go to heaven. So in Islam, Allah is described as a being who has power, but there is no reason for you to have hope. Buddhism, don't have hope. Just be what, just end all desire. Taoism, just embrace whatever comes. In Islam, yeah, he's got power, but he's a capricious type of God. You never know which one you're going to get on which day, but you should just embrace whatever comes. Your destiny is predetermined. The cross surpasses all of those things. And at this point, we're talking about the faith and the belief of roughly 6 billion people in the world out of 7 billion The cross goes beyond all other religions, all other philosophies, because in the cross, God says to you, I have the power to save you, and because I have the power to save you, you have good grounds for hope. Hope and power. The Apostle Paul, he talks first about hope. Hope is what the queen of the south was looking for when she came to hear the preaching of Solomon. Jesus says that the queen of south came from a far distance and she came to sit at the feet of Solomon to hear his wisdom. Here was a woman who was, we could describe her as soft, who was seeking, who was looking for answers. She has come, she has heard there's a king in Israel who is wise and she is prepared to hear whatever wisdom she has to offer. We don't know anything more about this particular lady, but we could probably safely say that she was a seeker, that she was interested, that she was soft and open to the gospel and she has come to hear the wisdom of whatever Solomon has to teach. And Jesus' statement is there's something better than what Solomon was sharing with her standing right here. She was looking for hope. And Jesus says that he is all that there is for hope. He is the greatest hope. Paul, touching on this, writing to the church in Rome, he says that Jesus was put forward by God as a propitiation by his blood. That is a satisfaction for our sins to be received by faith. And he goes on to say, this is to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. But it shows his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus comes as a man. We deserve a certain sentence. We deserve punishment for our sins. God has revealed in the scriptures that he is prepared to accept a sacrifice but it must be of the same kind. So only a man can take the place of another man. Therefore, Jesus comes as a man. But Jesus doesn't come only as a man. He comes as fully man and fully God. If a judge is prepared to accept a sacrifice, a a substitute in our place for our sins, a substitute may come forward and may present themselves And yet all of us are at an enormous distance from this holy judge in heaven. Though we have a man that we might put forward in our place to die for our sins, how could we ever be assured that the judge would accept the payment from this substitute in our place, on our behalf? The only assurance we would ever have is if we knew that it was the judge himself who came to stand in our place. 
When you look at, at all the other religions, whether you're looking at all uh, Islam, whether you're looking at Taoism, whether you're looking at the Eastern religions, Sikhism, Buddhism, all of these different paths that are suggested as a means to the end of salvation, as nice as they sound, ultimately fall flat because none of them give any concrete assurance that you actually can have hope in what they're offering. And yet, in Christianity, God is so careful to give us assurance that we are accepted before him, that it does not do for him to raise up another man, any other man, however good that man might have been, even if it were possible for a purely human man, a new Adam to come in our place and die on our behalf because when we look at the scales of God's justice, we've got our sins on this side and we've got God's holiness and his righteous standard on this side, even if there were a purely ordinary human man who was perfect and sinless, a new Adam that could have died in our place, we would never have confidence that the infinitely holy character of God on this scale over here would be sufficiently tipped by just an ordinary man, holy and perfect though he hypothetically could be. We would never have confidence that those scales would balance out. But when we understand that Jesus is an ordinary man, just like you, me, but extraordinary in the sense that he is not just a man, he is fully man and fully God. We know that the judge who is weighing the scales is on both sides. He is on the side of sinners and he is on the side of his own righteousness. Therefore, he can say to us, as Paul does in the book of Romans, he is fully just. His righteous standard is completely satisfied. And yet he, the judge, is the justifier of those who would hope in him. So Christianity, unlike anything else in the whole world, is the only thing that gives us hope. It's the only religion that has hope as its goal for those people that God is reaching with the good news. We are given hope because our salvation rests on what is truly powerful. The next thing that the Apostle Paul says He says that the salvation of the cross is powerful. It is the greatest of all possible powers. Writing to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, he says, it is the power of God. He goes on, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, to those who are called, he says, it is the power of God for salvation. We have hope because the one who judges is on both sides of the scales, but we have even greater hope because the salvation that is offered on the cross is promised to save us to the uttermost. God is very careful to show us that in dying on the cross, he nullifies all death. We are not just partially saved, we are fully saved. We are completely saved, and there is no one that can ever come between us and God. What greater power in the universe could there ever be beyond the infinite power of a holy God. What other object could come between us and him if it is him who is with us? We have hope and we have power in the cross. The Ninevites knew that power. Jesus begins his rebuke of this evil generation for seeking after a greater sign by talking about the hope that must surely have been the object of what the queen of the south was looking for. 
But then he also discusses the Ninevites. Unlike the Queen of the South, these people are brutes. They are savages. These are individuals who do not worship the one true God, and they are a violent, cruel people, bent on their own ways, on dominating and uh, ruling over all of their neighbors. This is a cruel, violent group of people. They are not what you would call soft seekers. They are not people in pursuit of a hope. They are not people who've wrestled with the reality of their own sinfulness and decided that they need something to save them. They are quite content in their wickedness. And yet when Jonah shows up, a man who is half-hearted at best and prefer to see these guys eradicated, when Jonah shows up to preach of God and his mercy and his, his willingness to save, the power of God is unleashed to change their hearts. These two examples to talk about the cross, these two examples show us from both sides that there is nothing greater. Many of us know of brothers and sisters, so-called, who they hear about Jesus. They maybe went to a vacation Bible school many, many years ago. They prayed the prayer And they were assured that just by going through these motions, they would be saved forever. And then their lives took an interesting turn away from God, where they concluded that since they had said the prayer as though it were nothing more than an abracadabra or a hocus pocus, an incantation that we recite in order to secure our own deliverance, that we now can live however we want. They are not standing in the power of the cross. The word that Jonah preached to the Ninevites was repent or in 30 days this city will be destroyed. And of course, they have no power in themselves to repent unless God helps them. Jesus says that that generation of Ninevites will stand up in the judgment and condemn this current generation because they were empowered at the preaching of Jonah to repent and there is something greater than Jonah that is here. Christ crucified. If your only motivation for living a good life was fear of punishment and if once that fear of punishment was removed, you then felt the liberty to go on living exactly as you were before, then you were never standing in the power of the cross because what God is doing through Jesus, dying on the cross, is not simply to remove the record that stands against us, though he absolutely does that, But more so, he changes our hearts so that our motivation now for living is not a motivation driven by fear of punishment. It is a motivation driven by desire to be close to God the Father. The Ninevites don't want God. Jonah preaches they, in the power of God, are brought to repentance. And Jesus is saying there's something greater here. The cross is the greatest, it is the greatest power of God that ever could have been. There is no reason to be embarrassed or ashamed of the cross. There is no reason in conversations with our neighbors or our coworkers or our colleagues when they say, well, what about this? You don't need any other argument. You need only the cross. This is something that we need to wrap our minds around once again. Any other possibility of salvation, any other suggestion for how we might improve our condition does not deal seriously with who we are or it does not deal seriously with who God is. It's the greatest of all miracles. As we stand before a holy God, being guilty of all that we are guilty of. It just doesn't seem possible that there's any way we could ever 
truly be forgiven or reconciled. And God puts Jesus forth as the miracle, the only possible miracle that can save us. Rejoice in the cross, church. Rejoice in Jesus Christ dying on that cross for you. We return to Luke chapter 11. And Jesus begins by making this suggestion about that generation that kept asking for more, more miracles, more signs, more wonders, more proofs, more evidence. He says the only sign, the only proof, the only evidence you need is the cross. But he begins by identifying what their real issue is. He says in verse 29, this generation is an evil generation. Within this particular book, uh, the Gospel of Luke, if you want to just put your thumb there, I invite you to flip back a couple of chapters with me. Go all the way back to chapter 2 and verse 34. This is the birth narrative of Christ. In Luke 2, 34, Mary and Joseph have taken Jesus to the temple in order to have him circumcised, in order to have him devoted, consecrated to the Lord, which was custom. And then there they encounter a number of individuals who see Jesus and they identify him for who he truly is. And one man named Simeon makes this poignant statement. Verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Notice this. He is appointed for a sign. A sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. But he says that this child is appointed for a sign that will be opposed so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Whenever Jesus is preached, whenever God as man dying on the cross in order to forgive is proclaimed, Whenever the gospel is offered, understand this, church. Jesus is held out as the object upon which we can believe. The only one in whom we can believe. And whenever we share the gospel and whenever we talk about Christ on the cross and whenever we hold forth Christ it is never proclaimed in vain. You can't hear the gospel and not be moved either closer to heaven or further settled and confirmed in your preference for hell. The gospel moves us, it impacts us, and we never encounter the cross without being forever changed. When we share about Jesus People are changed one way or the other. They're either moved towards heaven by the power of the Spirit through the word of Christ or they reject it. As Simeon says to Mary, their thoughts are revealed for what they truly desire and they do not desire Christ. The gospel is offensive. The gospel was always intended to be offensive. In our current day and age, we want to do things in such a way as not to offend. As Canadians, we are particularly susceptible. We suffer from the national plight, this insane desire to always be polite. It's the Canadian plight of politeness, as I refer to it. We want to all just get along. We can't be Christians and simultaneously hold to the idol of getting along. 
Because the gospel, as it is presented to us in the scriptures, is intended to reveal a person's deepest, darkest desires. And when we preach Jesus and we offer forth the gospel, people will be impacted. It will have an effect. They will either be moved closer to heaven or more commonly what we can expect to see happen is that they will be more settled in their obstinacy and their rebellion against God. This is clearly prophesied at the birth of Christ. Simeon sees this young couple bringing this brand new baby boy for the circumcision and the consecration that was the privilege and the joy of every new set of parents entering into the temple. And yet when he sees this child, the spirit speaks to his heart and he can't help but make the comment to Mary and Joseph, this is the Messiah, this is the one that has been appointed for the rising of many. And also for a sign that will be opposed. It will be opposed. Paul touches on this time and time again in his ministry. In the book of Galatians, he says, Brothers, if I were preaching circumcision, that is, if I were preaching a method of salvation apart from Christ, then why would I be persecuted, he says. If I were preaching anything else, the world would probably clap for me. And we see it time and again in our society. People come forward and say, I'm Muslim. That's great. Hallelujah. They come forward. They say, I'm Sikh. That's great. Hallelujah. They come forward. They say, I'm Hindu. We say, that's great. Let's be multicultural. But when somebody stands up without even necessarily pressing the absolute demand that Christ makes and says, I'm just a worshiper of Jesus without calling for repentance or any of the rest of it, doesn't matter. I worship Jesus. It's like, oh, wow. But of course, we're polite, so we'll only wait until it gets serious before we start denouncing each other. Nevertheless, the judgment is palpable and clear. The sign is opposed. We should probably step back at this point, and I think the pandemic gives us a good opportunity to do so. We are gathered here on Good Friday, worshiping the Lord. We rejoice to worship our King who died for us. We do not have to live in fear of death because we have Jesus who died that we might live. In the world, all of Canada, it says, oh dear, there's a 0.03% chance that we might die. So we should still go to the bars. We should still go to the restaurants. We should still go to the grocery stores. But don't you guys dare keep going to church. Think about that for a moment. Think about the sign that we represent. Worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, saying that there is no other hope apart from vaccines or therapies or treatments. Though our world hurls itself headlong towards scientific innovation and technology as a means for its ultimate deliverance and salvation. Understand that there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And there is no greater salvation that could have ever been except Jesus Christ. Of course the world opposes this. We might get infected and then we might infect one of them. And whereas we don't fear death, they fear it greatly. Church, we gather to worship the Lord. And in doing so, it offends. Paul says, if I were preaching anything else, then why would I still be persecuted? What he's asking rhetorically is, you know, for the church at Galatia, why, why don't you agree? Isn't it clear that as I'm preaching the gospel, people are out to get me? Is that not evidence of its truthfulness? He says again, of those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, it is those who would want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they would not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Those words have serious application for us today. 
do we want to make a good showing in the flesh? Or do we want to preach Jesus crucified for sinners? I uh, was riding in this car after pulling a prank with my friend. And I had shared with him about this is why Jesus died, to save us from these silly pranks that we are committing. I had already shared the gospel with him previous. I'd already talked about Jesus previous. That first time that I'd shared the gospel with my friend in high school, he had sat quietly and said nothing. I don't remember how many weeks or months passed, but I do remember I had shared it with him previously. I'd explained all about Jesus dying on the cross, how it satisfied the demand for justice, and it gave us the privilege and the opportunity to be called sons and daughters of the Most High. He'd sat and listened and not said a word. And then on a particular night in which teenage boys were acting like the hooligans they typically are, it wasn't even meant to be a serious witnessing conversation piece. I just made a statement in passing. This is why Jesus died, to save us from these kinds of silly mistakes. No. He rejects it. See, he had been moved by the gospel. He'd been moved, he'd considered it, and he'd hardened his heart, and he'd doubled down on his unbelief. The author of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. When we hear the gospel, First Baptist Church, remember this. We have a duty to believe it. From time to time, we engage in these conversations in which the world around us says, well, that's just what you believe. You need to understand that as far as God is concerned, that's what everyone is called to believe. And as far as God is concerned, that holding forth of Jesus on the cross ought to compel faith and obedience from everyone. The cross is all there ever is. The cross is all there ever will be. And there could never have ever been anything greater than the cross of Jesus Christ. Believe and be proud in Jesus. Father in heaven, we just say thank you for sending your son to die on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for putting our sins on him that we might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled. And as we worship you today, Lord, our prayer is that we would be hoping in nothing except what you have accomplished forever for us in dying in our place on the cross. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Many, uh, two years after I'd had this conversation with my friend in the car, we'd had multiple conversations through the years, and I sat down with him one day, and I had prepared a, a list of arguments to address his many objections. And I worked through these arguments in an attempt to persuade him. And yet, even though these arguments I felt were very compelling regarding the historicity of Jesus, the empty tomb, and so forth and so on, he wouldn't have any of it. And having talked with him for a long time, there came a point towards the end of the conversation in which I said to him, can I just ask you a question? Would you even want it to be true that there's a God in heaven who deals fully with your sin and your imperfection and is prepared to save you to the uttermost because he loves you. And he was completely brought up short in that moment. 
I said, we can address all of these different arguments in time. We, we could look at all of these different objections that you raise, but would you want him? And he was speechless for probably about 30 seconds. You see, the issue is not that God is not willing to save us and prove himself to us. He has fully done it in the cross. The issue is we are an evil generation that do not want him. Want him. Want him. Believe in him. Let's sing, church. This last week, I received an email from my friend. Eric was his name, is his name. And I just want to read this email to you, just a, a short excerpt of it, if I may. Hi, Josh. Long time no see. He goes on to talk about a few events in his life that have transpired recently. He mentions being married having kids, being divorced, not being able to see his kids, and the passing of his mother as a result of COVID-19. It's been a tumultuous year. And through all of this, the loss of my family, the loss of my mother, oh, he also lost his job, and the loss of my job, I have, through every single one of these tragedies, not been able to forget the question you asked me over 20 years ago now. If all of those arguments could be set aside, would I want a Father in Heaven who loves me? Josh, I do. Would you write me back and tell me more about Jesus Christ? P.S. I've been watching you on the live streams. You dress way better than you did back in high school. Church. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Church. The cross is the place of God's power. And because it is the place of his power, it is the place of his hope, of hope, where we can have hope, because he lives. Would you sing with us?